This is Patrick Russell. I'm interviewing Bob Shelteau uh, for the first time. This interview is taking place at St. Mary Iglesias on June 4th, 2014. Um, this interview is being conducted by the Making History Project for a project named War and Peace, Memories from World War II. Let's continue with the story you're telling me about writing your books. You were telling me earlier that you've written three books. Yes, I did. Uh, th this was about 20 years ago that I wrote the first book, From Wheat Fields to Battlefields, and the name deriving from the fact that I was brought up in the wheat fields of Indiana. Uh, I, I don't recall why I got the idea of writing a book, but I did, and uh, didn't pay too much attention to it until a reporter heard about it and read it, and then it came out in the newspapers and very quickly sold about a thousand copies. Uh, I soon lost interest in it and lay gathering dust for many years, and my grandchildren have now picked up the project of, of uh, putting the book on Amazon, which they have done. Uh, since then, I have written a children's book called Fire Dauber, and uh, then uh, more recently, I just finished a book called From, uh, uh, we, uh, From Battlefields to Wheatfields, the opposite of the title of the first one. first one meaning going from the wheatfields of Indiana to, into battles. The second meaning from coming out of battles and how a soldier copes with coming home and the conditions that they find at that moment. And what motivated you to write these books? I don't recall any motivation. I, I just I, I knew that I had had a tremendous amount of experiences, uh, far exceeding the average person. And I, I guess if, if I had to have a, a motivation, it would be that I would like for people to uh, experience some of the things that I experienced. Well, tell us where you started first of all in the in the service. What branch? Well, I, the, the government allowed me to graduate in 1943, in June of that month, and immediately then I was in, uh, drafted into the service. I uh, went to Be Fort Benjamin Harrison, a suburb of Indianapolis, was then 30 days later transferred to Camp Bowie, Texas. And uh, at that point I underwent uh, training as a combat engineer. An interesting point is that the a band met the incoming train, and I thought it was a bit unusual, never found the reason until years later than at an army reunion, uh, an individual told me the reason the band was there because we were being activated into a brand new unit. And uh, whenever they activated a new unit, they brought the band out. And that solved the mystery of why the band was on the platform when I arrived in Camp Bowie. Uh, in 43. What were your service dates? Pardon me? What were your service dates? So you started the service in 43 and in, until in when? In 43 and, and uh, then I was discharged in December, early December of uh, 45. So I was in the service about two and a half years. Okay. And I guess that's not too long compared to most service people. And what uh, what type of things did you do in the service? Well, it's interesting to note that when we arrived at Camp Bowie, being a new unit, they lined everyone up on the parade ground, and then the cadre, uh, the top sergeant, made up of top sergeant and the supply sergeant and cooks and so forth, uh, they stood in the background on this long line of troops, all raw recruits. And uh, they went down the line and they said to this individual, you're a truck driver, to the next individual, you're a uh, tool keeper, and so on until they got to me and they looked me in the eye and they said, you're a weapons sergeant. This did not mean that I was immediately a, a sergeant, but I would gain the rank of a sergeant if I didn't fulfilled my duties as they expected. And uh, that's how I happened to become a, a weapon sergeant. My duties consisted of uh, 
overall responsibility for each and every weapon that our company had and uh, also I was in charge of security. So when the work detail went out to clear a minefield or build a bridge or blow up a bridge, whatever the occasion might be, uh, my job was to see that these boys were protected uh, from the enemy forces. And so you're saying that it was just the fate of, or the luck of the draw, how you became a... Just just the fate of luck. They pointed the finger and they said, you're, you're a, a weapon sergeant. And, and, and then years later, I come to realize that what a blessing that was. Uh, many uh, individuals, most all individuals, are dedicated to a squad, a platoon, a company, a battalion. Uh, I, I was really not dedicated really to any of those groups. I, I, I was a, considered kind of a loner. Uh, I, they gave me a, a vehicle and they gave me a driver. And it was my responsibility to uh, see that these weapons were kept clean and provide the security. Beyond that, I had very little supervision. And so this opened the door to many experiences a normal person wouldn't have. If in battle we saw something happening on another side of a hill, I'd say to the driver, let's go check it out and see what's going on. Not many people had the opportunity to do those things. So because of that, I had far more experiences than the average individual. And you were part of the 3rd Army, correct? Uh, yes, I was under George S. Patton's in the 3rd Army. And what type of uh, weapons did you were you involved with? Well, we, I remember we, we had a Thompson submachine gun. Um, we had, of course, the M, everyone carried an M1 rifle. And then we had the carbine, we had the 50 caliber. The 50 caliber was usually mounted on top of a ring mount above the passenger seat of the cargo truck upon which I was usually spent most of my time riding in transit. And um, various other types, uh, 45 pistol, so on. And the interesting thing was that as a weapon sergeant, I had to know every detail of each of these weapons. And part of my testing was that uh, we would not just field strip, which means that large pieces come off of the weapons, but I had to be able to detail strip down to the nuts and bolts of each weapon, and no matter how small or how large, and uh, blindfold them, throw them onto a GI blanket, mix them up, and then be able to put all these these weapons back together blindfolded. And th this was necessary because you, you may have darkened conditions when you had to do that. And uh, so that was the extent of my knowledge, part of my knowledge. That's pretty impressive. So how many weapons do you think that you had to be a master of? Most of it, they, we had a 30 caliber uh, air-cooled machine gun, we had a 30 caliber uh, water-cooled machine gun, and then we had the, the 50 caliber, and those are basically the three units that I was involved with. They, they, they were the main backbone of our uh, security around each, uh, each and every job that we went on. Uh, we also had the bazookas. Uh, we, I saw very little action with the bazookas, but uh, although we did it during wartime, come up with one one uh, one uh, time that we had to use the, that particular weapon. You mentioned earlier that because of your position, you had a lot more um, experiences uh, than perhaps other servicemen. Yes. Can you elaborate what type of other experiences you had? Uh, well, one of the most dramatic experiences that I had uh, happened shortly after we landed on Utah Beach, and we put together a few broken bridges and so on, which is kind of routine and monotonous, but then uh, uh, one day uh, we were assigned a job of cleaning uh, a highway off with mines, and uh, I happened to be in the rear of the work detail. And I heard a motor in, in back of me, and I turned, and there were three Jeeps. And in the center Jeep uh, was General George S. Patton. Uh, I knew this, uh, even from a distance, because I could see the stars on the bumper. He always had his stars printed on the bumper, and I knew that's who it was. 
And as I looked up, uh, he motioned me forward and I came to his Jeep. And uh, he was interested in knowing how far we had been looking for mines. And then he, he asked a question, have you found any mines? And I was giving negative answers, no sir, no sir. And uh, then he asked a question that jokingly I can then say uh, to my friends that the famous General George S. Patton came to me for advice. And this is how that happened. I found it quite humorous. Uh, the third question that he asked, he said to me, Soldier, what do you think about up above, beyond this point? And to me, that was a, that, that, he was asking advice. So I jokingly say, this guy came to me for advice. And uh, my answer was very short and sweet and simple. No, none, sir. I, I don't know. I have no idea. And uh, with that, he, he had a swagger stick and he motioned forward. And all three Jeeps uh, took off at top speed. He had a major for a machine gunner in, in his uh, Jeep and uh, two other lesser officers in the Jeep in front and in the back, and they had 30 calibers, and the Major in Patton's Jeep had a 50 caliber machine gun. But the interesting thing about that was that after he left and went over the road that was not clear of mines, the Jeeps jumped the highway, crossed the ditch, and sped up the backside of a long hill cow pasture. But up on top of the hill, uh, was an American observation post, and you could see puffs of smoke above that where an LS-5 was dodging bursts of artillery that the Germans were trying to knock this plane out of the air. And occasionally shell bursts were on top of the hill. And he stopped the backside of the hill with these three jeeps, three men from a distance we could watch and see. They bent over and they rushed up to the backside of the hill, flopped down, on top of the hill where the along with the observer, what American observer was, and he watched the front lines for a good 20 minutes. And, uh, and then uh, they both, all three, mounted jeeps again, and zoom, 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 they were disappeared and were gone. And about three days later, there was a tremendous drive. American tanks come up that same road, and it was a big drive and quite a large advance. So Patton was looking for a weak spot, soft spot. He apparently found one, and that's where the war uh, took uh, another advance, up, up that road that we were trying to clear of mines. What day did you land on Utah Beach? We didn't land on Utah Beach during the action. As you recall in your history book, the uh, war, uh, war, Eisenhower's war strategy was to hold General George S. Patton and Third Army in England, quite visible, and uh, so the Germans would know that, that the Third Army was still there, therefore perhaps thinking that this was not the real invasion. But after the invasion, then we were released, and then this was in the month of August. Were you involved in the action that led to the Feliz Gap? Pardon me? Were you involved in the action that led to the Battle of the Feliz Gap? Which gap? Feliz? No, I'm not aware of that. You're not aware of that no. one. But, um, uh, uh, which direction did you head when you landed on Utah, if you remember? Well, we, uh, it's kind of interesting uh, landing on Utah Beach. Uh, we left England in LSTs, landing craft tanks, and uh, all of our ships were full of engineering vehicles and equipment. And uh, we lay offshore during the daytime, uh, low tide, waiting for the high tide to appear, and uh, so we could watch the beach. It was piled full of tremendous quantities of war materials, piled high, and it was a mess. And above all that were dirigible-like balloons on, anchored on the end of steel cables flying high. I don't know how many hundreds of feet, but they were up high. Uh, this was to keep the enemy aircraft from strafing low on the beach. And so it was just a, a matter, uh, 
a scene of turmoil as far as supplies and war materials went. And then the uh, tide came in uh, after dark, sometime during the middle of the night, the tide reached high level, and uh, we were sitting in the, in the ships uh, waiting, and we could hear the sound of a bulldozer outside building a road to us. Later they would have floating docks brought over from England. There were no docks. So the ship nosed onto the beach, bulldozers piled the sand up, created kind of a crude road out of sand, then in the total darkness dropped the front of the ship down and MPs were out on the beach waving batons for the vehicles to follow and apparently we made a wrong turn because the batons ended, we saw no more MPs directing traffic, but uh, we disregarded this, found a road coming off the beach and on the highlands and the fields above, we stopped uh, waiting for the rest to catch up, which they never did. Uh, we were alone, and the rest of them had gone the right way, and we'd made the wrong turn uh, in the middle of all these war supplies. And uh, daylight uh, started to break. We were using little slitted glasses on the lens of the, uh, of the uh, trucks, and we could only see 10, 15 yards ahead of us, it was a pitch dark, and uh, so we had no idea where we were at. Uh, we didn't even know if it was the right road we took, but uh, daylight did, did come and we uh, saw steam coming from the radiator and I told Pete Callis, the driver, uh, we cannot go much farther, Pete, the radiator was, or the truck will certainly freeze up because of the heat. And he said, here's a farmhouse. And he said, Bob, you go down and get a bucket of water, and I'll stand by the truck. I, I had a translation book that they'd given us, a small book, in our breast pocket. And as I'm going down the path to knock on the door, I open up my little translation book, but there's not much light. It's hard to see. And I pounded on the door, and as the, the person is coming to the door, I'm, I'm scrambling to find the right word. And the door opened, there's a little shriveled up lady, full of wrinkles, farm, farm lady. And uh, I uh, gave her this word, uh, thinking it was water, and uh, she disappeared. But we could hear the cattle and the, and the, and the chickens in the background, and uh, only separated by a, a petition. Most people at that point in time pretty much lived together with their animals. And she returned with a bucket. Uh, with a dozen or two egg, of eggs for the radiator for the truck. <laughs> and uh, th this was a, a problem. And so finally I took the little lady by the hand and together we walked up the path to the truck. And I pointed to the steam coming out of the radiator and then she immediately knew what was wrong re and turned and ran down the path with the bucket and uh, she uh, came back with a bucket of fresh water. And it was a, quite a surprise. We, we gave her a chocolate bar, and because of the way her eyes sparkled, lit up, and the expression on her face, we know that this poor old farm lady had not experienced chocolate in many, many years under occupation. That's a pretty amazing story. Did you have any other interactions with um, civilians through your tour? Not, no, not too many. Uh, I stayed, I stayed clear of most of the civilians. Uh, uh, we had very little to do with them, and um, some some people were looters. Uh, would go in and loot homes and things for personal things that they wanted, and I stayed away from this type of thing because. I had a deep dread of uh, booby traps. Germans are very expert at that. Uh, to give an example of a booby trap, uh, the Germans vacated a large French barracks, uh, several stories high, and we found ourselves being housed in a small room uh, on the top floor, and uh, my uh, roommate, uh, he said, Bob, we're going to have to have a scuttle of uh, coal, 
and take the scuttle bucket down and uh, bring back some coal. Would you do that, please? So I, I said, sure. And I took off. And uh, as I'm coming back up and down the hallway, they, they, one of the rooms burst open like a firecracker exploding inside of a tin can. And the wall literally came off of the room and was displaced. It was now tipped out on the far side of the hall and being propped up. And in the middle of all this smoke was, was my friend next door. And uh, he was completely stunned and we brought him back conscious, but he, he, was, he survived and was not hurt. And what had happened, the Germans, before we moved in, had booby-trapped the coal bin. And uh, they used egg coal, and it looked exactly like coal. Uh, and you could not tell the difference between a piece of TNT and the coal. And the, the, fella, the fellow in the room ahead of us, he'd gotten his fire started earlier. And that's why his room exploded first. An exploding room. <laughs> that's an interesting booby trap. Did you have to do any work that would be disabling booby traps? Or you only had to deal with your weapons? No, we, we, mines, we were heavy in that. Uh, we, we cleared minefields. And, and uh, as a matter of fact, uh, uh, we, we cleared all the minefields around Bastogne. And... Um, the way the way we had to do that, uh, these these poor GIs, the airborne Air Force guys, many many of them were dead. They're frozen in their holes, and so we had the job of uh, pulling these guys out. And there was a specific way you had to do that. And if you didn't, you could get yourself blown up. The Germans, as I mentioned earlier, were very great and clever on booby traps. So they would booby trap a body that's in a foxhole. And uh, they do that by putting a, a wire from that body down deeper into a large piece of explosive. And if you went in there to pull the body out, uh, you, you'd, you'd get yourself blown up. So possibility of it, not always, but possibility. So we always had a 50-foot rope tied around the body and then we'd go out and lay in the probe position, tip our steel helmet down, and then we'd two or three guys and start pulling on the rope. And many times the bodies have to be brought out in pieces that way. So that was kind of a messy thing. Well, that leads to my next topic. Um, some say that war is hell. Yes. Do you agree with that? Well, it certainly is. Can you tell yeah. me more? Uh, I, I, I treat each each dead dead body like any inanimate object. It would no different than, than a stone, a fallen tree, log, or whatever. Uh, after a while, you, you 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 don't get involved in this. You you can't get involved in it. You put it all all behind you. So it numbs you. It does. Yeah, you put it all behind you, and that way you 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 go along with a clear clear mind and be able to do your job. Everything has to be put behind you. What happened yesterday is forgotten. And how did you develop that that type of mindset? Is that something that they well, trained you to do, or something you well, came my, up with my, yourself? My no, my first experience with that would be uh, the, we, we were given a job of uh, of uh, uh, keeping. Well, first of all, when the Battle of Balls broke out, uh, of course, Patton was the head of the the rest of the armies and apparently had hindsight and knew that this was going to, or foresight knew that this was going to happen. And at least he suspected it was. So he had us prepared to go into the Battle of Bulge uh, before any of the other armies even were aware of this. So when we moved up to where the action was taking place, uh, as a matter of fact, it was bitter cold. And that first night on the battlefield, we were given a bowling alley to sleep on. So we slept in the bowling alley, and the next morning we were we all went to this meeting, and uh, they said that uh, each each uh, individual is assigned these roads, and uh, there was two or three roads coming out of this town, as I recall, and uh, any group that was assigned a road, uh, they were assigned it with the orders that nobody uh, surrendered 
nobody retreated, that this was your position and you would stay there. And no German would come farther than this point. So with that, uh, we uh, strung up uh, uh, TNT, uh, I forgot the name of the cable. Uh, but anyway, we wired all the trees alongside the road. So if a German tank come that direction, we would turn the galvanator and all the trees would jump off the stump, crisscross, and that would be our roadblock. And the uh, officer in charge was, uh, was uh, Captain Cisna, and he was a very eager guy and very aggressive. And he said, well, boys, we'll move on up ahead and uh, we'll, mine, we'll blow up a bridge in this little town of Billstorf. And at night, we moved up to blow the bridge up. And uh, in the meantime, German paratroopers came in and dug themselves in alongside the road and created an ambush. And it just so happened I was in the, behind in the third squad. And the first and the second squad were completely annihilated. Either that or came casualties uh, in the ambush. And uh, so we were able to retreat and go back and set up a roadblock in a defensive position. So I had some experience, to answer your question. I had a little experience uh, and um, for what happened that night. So I was on edge, and I knew the enemy at that point in the war would use real bullets. And uh, so I, I was then on, on, aware, on aware and on alert. And this, this, this started built, develop an instinct for danger. And um, so then it was only a few days later, they were, uh, I, we were given an assignment for our truck to go back and pick up a load of explosives from an army depot. And um, in this truck, the cargo truck that we had, uh, were many numerous miscellaneous items like Bangalore torpedoes, which you use to blow barbed wire, and uh, a case or two or three of M1 30 30 caliber shells and bullets and uh, uh, 50 caliber, 45 caliber, and so forth. This miscellaneous stuff, it really didn't fit. We got into the, uh, well, and the depot is nothing but a field uh, inside of a woods. Uh, they've just moved this stuff up and put truckloads of munitions. You can walk in and pick up anything you want. So we got there, but the guy in charge came, came over and he said, no, and we had to have a lot of TNT. And they come in rectangular boxes. They packaged real nice and neat. And uh, so he said, we're having, we'll have trouble with the irregularity of all this mess in here that you guys got in that truck. He said, clean that thing out and we'll put all these nice even boxes in there. And then we'll throw that stuff up on top. And uh, but then again, uh, instinct told me that that was not the thing to do. And uh, so instead of that, we piled the TNT on top. That saved my life. And the reason it saved my life is because you could not explode TNT with a bullet. So if you're in another ambush, you're not going to get blown up. Uh, because it won't. you could set TNT on a fence post, shoot at it all day. It won't blow up. You have to have a detonator to make it explode. But the detonators are now on the bottom, the TNT is on top, so you, this is safety. They, they had a hard time understanding that depot, but being through an ambush, I'm leery. And so I'm on the, on the, the lookout for problems. And uh, sure enough, we get into Wall, Luxembourg, They're heading back to Wilts, and they um, Stuka, I think it must have been a Stuka. I thought first it was another German fighter plane, but I'm convinced it had to be a Stuka, and because they are dive bombers. And this dive bomber, Stuka, came straight down, and because I we have a top on the truck, so I'm not able to see visibility. Visibility is very poor. And uh, so the Stuka came straight down, and now I hear the guns firing up there. And I'm now on alert that something's going on, and I think it's an ambush again, but coming from the fields at 1 o'clock. 
but it's not coming from the field. Where were you sitting? Uh, pardon me? Where were you sitting in the truck? I'm sitting beside the driver. Okay. In the on the passenger seat. Uh, we have, we earlier we took the top down because we saw suspicious activity in the air overhead. And I'll explain what that was. Uh, when Patton issued the prayer that we will, uh, that he hopes that the skies will clear so that we can eliminate our enemy, the skies did that and they cleared. And overhead on that particular day, the sun was literally blocked out by American bombers. And there were thousands of planes in the air, all headed into Germany for bombing runs. And, um, but below that mess of planes was this one plane. And uh, we were very suspicious of that plane. I pointed this out to the driver and he stopped. I said, Pete, look, that take over. And he said, I don't know. He said, it, it, I can't understand why it's circling and not going with the rest of them. And he said, I don't understand why they don't come down and shoot him if he's an enemy, so apparently he's not an enemy. And uh, we debated it, and we stopped, watched, and we got cold. We'd taken the top off where we could get to the machine gun, uh, but we got cold. And now we think that, well, there's no, uh, no more fear, uh, no more danger, because this has been time has elapsed. But what we didn't know was this guy was still hanging around, and he knew where we were at and was waiting for us to come out. So finally we did come out of town, and we started up a long hill, and this is where we heard the firing. And I'm thinking it's an ambush, and then my eye catches the sight of bullet holes coming in the hood of the truck. This guy coming straight down, and it's like a machine, or like a sewing machine. And that's all I did. And I, I, I burst, literally burst the door open and rolled onto the highway. And uh, the truck continues on. And uh, then I, when I come out of the snowdrift, I look up and I see this plane. And I actually saw the pilot. The plane had made it, after he made the nosedive, he's now turned and coming up at a, a big steep angle and waiting to get altitude as he straightened out and take off. But I saw the pilot sitting there. And, uh, which I thought was quite unusual. But uh, I look up and see the truck up there, and I don't see Pete, the driver. And uh, so I thought, well, Jesus, he must be in the truck. So I ran up, and sure enough, he can't get out of the truck because his uh, gear shift, clutch, and all that's in the way. I was free as a passenger. Nothing obstructed me from breaking out. So I did that, broke out, and uh, but now the idea is to get him out of there because this thing is starting to blaze. Must have a dozen fires. So then uh, I'm able to work, work his, himself out with his help. He's still alive. He'd been hit five times. And uh, so I dragged him over into uh, a little patch of woods and over the backside of a hill. And then back then, the only thing we had was uh, sulfas. We had no penicillin. So I unload all my supply of sulfur in these holes, in these bullet holes for wounds. And, uh, but uh, he still needs some more help and more medicine. And so I look up and I assess my chance of getting the first aid kit behind the driver's seat. Uh, assess that and the fires, fires are still on top. And I thought, well, it's safe to do that. And you're talking about a truck with truck TNT. Truck sitting out there burning. With TNT Trump's inside. Burning. Yeah, it's been machine gunned. It's dead. And uh, so I dashed across and and with one motion uh, swept up the first aid kit behind the driver's seat. And lo and behold, a, ma a machine gun opens up fire. And I'm astounded, thinking that that guy had circled around and was now going to machine gun me. This is what I thought. It wasn't. And uh, the heat was so intense on the dry, on the passenger side, right? Uh, and that's where the 50-caliber machine gun was at. And earlier, when we had the top off, we had jacked a shell in there, ready to shoot at that guy. And uh, but since he had never showed up, and we got cold, we put the top back on. 
and uh, but the flames were coming up that side of the truck, and it got hot enough that that 50 caliber machine gun on its own, which was already cocked, ready to go, started firing, and I thought it was that plane. And then I saw that it was the bullets going up that way. Every fifth round was a tracer. You could see where it was shooting. And way up on the other end of the hill was this Jeep. He coming over the hill in direct line of fire, but he sees the tracers. And he swears to the right over the ditch on my side of the road and come barreling down through the open fields. And so I flagged him down and we got him in the the driver over in the back side of the hill, this thing blew up. And then we took Pete to the hospital. But he, he was hit too bad and he died about five days later. So uh, I, I think that was the point that you were asking me about uh, the, uh, what was that, qu War that question? War being hell. Huh? War being hell. Yeah, yeah. So that's all part of it. Mm -hmm. And that, how long had you um, been uh, working with Pete oh, up to that time? Yeah, from the day one. Day one. Yeah, and he was uh, uh, he was my uh, truck driver when we when I had the cargo truck, and then we had a fellow by the name of Ralph Dash, and when we had uh, a lesser type job, the the vehicle would be a three quarter ton weapons carrier or it would be a jeep. So I, I had more than one or two drivers there occasionally. So in that same moment, that event that you just described, mm -hmm. did you experience madness? No. No? No. Terror? Well, yeah, you, you'd be completely upset, yes. But uh, again, uh, well, I have to, I, yeah, it, it was... Um, it was on my mind pretty much, but then another incident happened that swept that away, and after that I was okay. And uh, we, we were um, sleeping in a little farmhouse. I'm not sure if it was a farmhouse, but it was a building. It was, you know, it was a house. Normally in Europe they don't have their farmhouses out in the country, so it was an individual home. And it had been converted into an artillery spotting, uh, an artillery directing command post. And uh, our bunk, our sleeping quarters, my uh, friend and I were sleeping up above on the top floor. Down below, they were directing fire for artillery that was back in the background, back a mile or two behind us. And but all the communications on where to aim the guns was coming into this spot and we were sleeping over the top of it. And uh, I came in one day from work and it was in the afternoon, I felt tired and I thought, well, I'll take a nap, nothing going on, heavy snow outside. And uh, so I'm sound asleep up above, middle of the afternoon. Uh, and uh, one and the uh, one of the guys that's running the artillery, the coordinates, they're coordinating the fire. and. Uh, one of the guys got started to get dark, and uh, he wanted to fill a Coleman lantern, and he filled white gas in a steel helmet, and they took top off, little top off the Coleman lantern. He he didn't know much. <laughs> <laughs> He's trying to pour out of a steel helmet, pour white gas into a little hole. The whole room come up and exploded. And uh, as it's catching fire, he throws a steel helmet. And now it's, it, the fire is over everything. So everybody runs all which directions to vacate it except my friend. And he ran up the stairs. And he shouted to me, Bob, building's on fire. And he literally dove out the window, second floor window. In the middle of winter. In the middle of winter. To get out of a burning building. To get out of the burning building. And my reaction from sound sleep was quick enough that I almost landed on top of him. So, uh, so um, that incident then. You had your well, uniform on. Huh? You had your uniform on. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that incident 
uh, just kind of broke everything, and 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 uh, I was all set to go, and uh, shook me right out of any thoughts about what had happened the previous couple days, and and uh, so that's the way it was. Well, that actually is a natural segue to my next question, which is peace. We first talked about war yeah. being hell. Peace. Now peace. In this incident, um, did you experience times of peace during war? Do what? Did you experience times of peace during war? Oh yes. War, war was one of these things. As a matter of fact, it's just a day of job, and uh, not, nothing's exciting. And uh, your excitement comes just occasionally when when these unusual things happen in a time frame of a well, you're. I was in service year year and a half, well, overseas year and a half. Year. In 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 the um, United States, one year and year and a half over there. So in the, in the, the the span of 18 months, you've got the high points. And the rest of the time is normal. Everything is normal. So things come in bursts. Yes, they do, and they come at unknown times. You never know when this is going to happen. You could walk into a problem any day, any time. So you always, had to, you always had to be on edge, you had to be very, very cautious, mentally. You don't express that. Nobody talks about it. But you're on, you're alert. And did that impact you after you left the service? That type of no, being the only, on the no, edge? No, the only... Um, uh, the only thing that I ever experienced, and I and and I could probably experience a little bit of that today, so 70 years later, uh, are shoe mines, and uh, shoe mines are made up of uh, plastic, uh, explosive, and uh, they they're built to blow a person's foot off, and the Germans literally scattered millions and millions of those things around, and a lot of people lost legs because of that. And uh, so you're always cautious when you step someplace. And uh, I don't know how to explain it, but uh, uh, that type of feeling would go on for years and years and years, that you're, you're always cognizant of where you're putting your feet. And to this day? Huh? To this day? Not too much now, not, not too much. Uh, yeah, it could. Yeah, it could be. It, it, my mind would go back to that. Yeah. Did you ever experience any um, acts of kindness during the war? Well, certainly your friend helped you by getting you out of the building in time. But did you ever experience any other types of kindness during war? No, it's just like working at a factory or anyplace else. Uh, it's just average. Uh, everything is average when you uh, go day to day, except those high points. And they're not average. They're they're, they're uh, situations where you you really go in full blast. But the rest is like pretty routine. Everything is uh, is uh, pretty routine. You're just there to do your job, and no matter what happens, it's pretty much quickly, you know, you're not talking about sitting around talking about it. It, it could be very dramatic. It's still nobody's sitting around talking about it. It's just a daily job. You do what you're told to do. In your third book, From the Battlefields to the Wheat Fields, you said that one of the purposes was to explain how you adapted and came yes. back. Yes. Can you tell me more about that? Well, you're, you're gone, like I was gone two and a half years. You don't know how to dress. Dress styles have changed two and a half years. And uh, so I'm, I'm told, I'm, I'm trying to seek advice, you know, what, what, do I, what do I wear, what do I buy? And uh, you're looking, watching everybody to see what they're wearing. So I made a trip to Indianapolis 80 miles away to buy three, three new suits. And they were called Zoot suits, and I was advised that's what you uh, that's what you should be wearing when you go out on a date. Well, the 
the cuffs are so small you can't put them on without taking your shoes off. I never wore them. And that's just a minor problem, but it's a lot of those little things that you have to settle, settle into that are different than when you left. What about the regimented lifestyle of the Army? Yeah, I never cared for that. And that didn't I, I leave an died. impact on you? I was kind of, uh, yeah, yeah I, I never cared for it. And uh, they, they wanted me to re-enlist and all that, and that was in the back of my mind. It's too regimented. And when I got home, my father wanted to be an electrician. And uh, my, my, he was an electrician, my uh, construction electricians, and my two brothers were electricians, and my brother-in-law was an electrician. We had four electricians, and I'm to be an electrician. And I did become an electrician, or try to, wanted to. And uh, the first day of the job, they, they told me that uh, we'll go see the shop foreman, and he's, this is a geroelectric factory that's being built. The only thing there is a concrete floor and walls and, and roof. No machines, no nothing. And so I'm looking for the drop shop Stewart, who turns out to have an office on the far end of the factory. But on my transit, I see a light bulb burnt out. And I searched and found a stepladder. And as I'm taking the light bulb out of the receptacle, I feel something tugging on my pants cuff. And uh, so I looked down, this guy says, come down here. So well, he said, are you the guy that they're sending over to see me? He said, I'm the stop shooter shop steward. I said, yes, I'm, I was over, look, I'm on my way to see you. And he said, why are you up there? And I said, I'm doing my duty. I said, I see the opportunity to get off on the right foot and I'm changing this light bulb. No, no, no. He said, you are not a journeyman. You're, you're a grunt. And this is a beginner electrician. You're not the journeyman, the full electrician. He said, we have a guy that can do that. That's not your job. And then a few days later, they had a, an experienced electrician screw the light bulb in. And at, at, at that moment, I realized now, uh, see, I'm in the union, and I, I realized now I'm in a regimented environment again. And that's really turned me off. And then uh, a few days later, uh, the carpenters moved a Cool tool crib from the wall along with the rest of the craftsmen, and they moved a tool crib to the center of this big space. And everybody, the other crafts, complained because they had to walk around it. It is an acre of space, but they complained and they went on strike. And I'm back home. And for, and two weeks later, the strike ends, and we're un, we're unloading a roll of cable huge massive cable, like three inches diameter, uh, six foot high spools. You can only move them with a jimmy bar. And the, the stop, shop steward of the millwrights come by and they say, what are you guys doing? Well, we're taking this roll of uh, cable off. And you can't do that, that's millwright shop. No, we own the cable, that's our cable. And there's another argument. Two weeks later, I'm back home again. And, On strike. Uh, strike. But but then again, you have to remember that the the wartime had drained all the products off the market, and people did not have stoves and refrigerators and things like that. And the cars had worn out, and, and there was all everybody was hungry for consumer goods. The unions were in the driver's seat. And there was, there was like uh, uh, fires, union fires all over the place with strikes all over the country. So this was not unusual happening, but it was not my environment. So you, so I, I moved, went off to Indiana University, and uh, completely changed the lifestyle. And, and what did you pursue? Uh, marketing. So the army did have an impact. In other words, it changed you from being regimented to pursuing something more yeah, free-flowing. Free, right, right. Well, I had the job in the Army, as you recall, 
uh, I was a free floater. I was not attached to anybody. I had very little supervision, and so I wasn't. The, uh, people would like for me to be have supervision, but I didn't want the supervision. <laughs> if you know, what you I mean. were a, a yeah. rebel with a cause. Yes, if you understand what I'm saying. Yes. Okay. And was there any other, um, how should we say, impact in terms of what you were reflecting in your book on your life from adjusting from the battlefields to the wheat fields? I don't think so. I, uh, I'd always wanted to be in business on my own, and uh, I succeeded in doing that, and although I did worked for Ralston Purity Company for 18 years, but then opened up my own business. And I had my own business before I worked for them. I, I, was, not a, I was not successful uh, in the first business that I opened up. Uh, I was at Messina, New York. Eisenhower signed the St. Lawrence Seaway Bill, and uh, uh, this was an agricultural feed store that I, was, that I had opened up. And it wiped out my market, and uh, it flooded the, when they built the 80-foot high dams. It flooded, and they created a, a lake five miles wide, about 30 miles long, wiped out most of my customers. So that was not a success. Ralston Pretty Company then picked me up because I had uh, knowledge and background of a feed store. And they wanted me then to come into marketing, and market is what I studied to do. So I uh, pursued the, the marketing course with Ralston Prina and was very, success, very successful doing that. You know. Good. And you obtained your degree through the GI Bill? Pardon me? You obtained your degree yes, through the yes, GI I Bill? Did. Yeah. I didn't get a degree. I went two years. Okay. Yes. Okay. And uh, I, uh, I had lost so much time being in service and trying to be an electrician and all that that I, I just couldn't go another two years. Uh, I wanted to get out and get going, get something started. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't finish. But I, I don't think that was any hindrance to me back then. Might be today, mm -hmm. but it didn't hinder me then. Is there anything else you would like to talk about that I haven't asked you about? Well, we went on, uh, and, and with uh, and during the war years, we, we went on to accomplish something that I've always felt we were we were never got we, we never got uh, the blessing from the army for doing the job that we did. I I, I held that as a little resentment towards the the army. We um, uh, succeeded in. Uh, as I might have mentioned to you earlier, we succeeded in uh, making an assault boat crossing across the Rhine River. And history books today look upon that event and they say that that's the first time in the history of warfare that any foreign element ever successfully crossed St. Lawrence River under assault conditions. And I just thought that. It, that deserves a little recognition. And so today I'm working on that. And, and I'm what trying, are you trying to do? I, I'm trying to get a monument built at Oppenheim, Germany, uh, dedicated to the 249th Combat Engineer Battalion and Patton's Third Army for accomplishing that that had never been done in all the history of warfare. And I just thought that that should be recognized. And so that's a little pet project on the side that I'm working on, and hopefully we'll get that job done while we're here uh, in France. Uh, I have the Patton Foundation that is trying to get a group of Germans together so that I can persuade them to build a tourist monument, to build tourist business. And on the monument, it would explain that that this is an important factor of history and that would be good for their business and good from my standpoint.
Well, that sounds like a worthy cause, and I, I believe it is. And I, I wish you all the luck with that. Thank you. And I thank you for giving me the opportunity to interview you, and, yeah. and I thank but, you for your I service. Had, I had more interesting experiences after the war ended. <laughs> well, certainly you, you, you had a, a whole bunch of them during as well. Yeah, I, I was put, I, I, I just briefly mentioned a little bit after the war, tremendous experiences. Uh, they had no need for a weapon sergeant because there was nobody to shoot at. The war had ended. Bullets are no longer flying. And so they changed my job description, not, not my rank. They changed my job description from weapons sergeant to construction foreman. And I was no longer, I was no more a construction foreman than you and I. Uh, I knew nothing about it, and uh, but that was a title they gave me. They had to do that apparently, and uh, now I'm standing around with nothing to do, and every once in a while an important job comes along and they find me and they say you do it, and um, one of those jobs was that uh, we were building a 20,000 person displaced person center. And the captain called me in, he said, we don't have any glass for the windows. And he said, it's very important to get glass. And we're sitting near Czechoslovakia, and I want you to go to Czechoslovakia, and you obtain glass for the center. It's under Russian occupation. And, uh, but again, we're in peacetime. So my driver, and he said, fill your vehicle up with gas and take extra cans and don't go until you run out of gas. So I had to go interview all these factories in Czechoslovakia that produce glass, convincing them to turn some of it over, over to us. And we finally did get one factory that would chip the glass. Uh, I thought that was interesting. A little and, from hot war to cold war. Yeah, and then another incident, they have to shut down the German war machine. And how do you shut down a war machine? I found it most interesting. They divided Germany into little squares. And I received one of those squares. And I received a form, a bunch of paperwork, red tape. And I was to interview anybody that was producing anything, whether it's strings or pencils. No matter what's being manufactured, they had to report it. So I arrived in the town where there's two shoot factories. The one guy is very irate. He's not going to reveal his information because I'm going next door. And he doesn't want the next door the competitor. to know. And uh, so I told the interpreter, I said, will you tell this gentleman that uh, this is perfectly all right to me. It really doesn't make a difference to me. And I'm coming back in two weeks. And if there, if, if this material is not filled out, he'll never make another pair of shoes, ever. So with that, he said, uh, sit down in that chair, which I did. He said, take your shoe off, I did. And he measured my foot. He said, when you come back, he said, I'm going to have something for you. And when I got back, he had the most beautiful pair of combat boots. <laughs> they were gorgeous. And there was not a nail in those boots. There was not a stitch in that, those boots. They were all held together with peg, peg nails, wooden peg nails. Hmm. Beautiful pair of boots. And uh, so I just thought that was interesting. The other point I found interesting was that an individual told me when I come out of a place of business, go look over the hill. There was something important went on there during the war. We went over that way surrounded by MPs, huge concrete facing on the side of a hill. The only place you can get in behind that wall is over on the end. You come in behind it. And inside is a factory that used to make rocket parts. The MPs wouldn't let me get anywhere. The V2? It. The hmm? V2 rockets? Yeah, I guess so. And they were they were packaging all this material up, labeling it to be shipped to the United States. And that's the, I thought, the birth, birthplace of the United States space program. And I, I thought that was interesting. 
Very interesting. And I was not able to get in there on the first trip. It took it took two trips to get in, and the first time, the officer in charge of me, he said, why, did, why wasn't this filled out on that place that you found? I said, they threatened to shoot me. And it's highly secure with MPs. And they sent word up to Patton's headquarters somewhere, and some officer way up top uh, sent down a piece of paper, which I gave two weeks later to the MPs, and they admitted me in. It's top secret, you know. And I just thought that was kind of interesting, too. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing your stories today. It's been a well, pleasure. And I wish you all the best and enjoy the rest of the week and your parade. Um, and all that goes with it for the remaining of the 70th anniversary. All right. And it's been interesting visiting with you. All right. Thank, thank you. you.